me invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John. It's near the back of your Bible, a little, a little before the book of Revelation. Not the Gospel of John, but the, the letter or the book of 1 John. We're going to start into chapter 2, the second half of that chapter, verse 15, in just a minute. Today I want to think about how we develop an instinct for discipleship. How do we develop an instinct for what it means to follow Jesus more fully, more closely? And as I was, was studying this passage this week, a particular image or illustration came to mind that might seem unusual to you, but it made sense to me. It had to do with uh, an essay that uh, Annie Dillard wrote many years ago. Annie Dillard's one of my favorite North American writers. Um, she's written all kinds of stuff, but she loves the natural world. She loves animals and, and being in the woods. And she wrote a, a short essay entitled Living Like Weasels many years ago. And that essay uh, is Annie Dillard's admiration for the single-mindedness of the weasel. And in particular, it's instinct. I want to share with you a, a few short excerpts from that essay. Dillard says, a weasel is wild. Who knows what a weasel thinks? Don't even know, you know, how deeply and abstractly a weasel thinks. But Dillard goes on to say that we do know that a weasel is obedient to its instinct. A weasel bites its prey at the neck, and a weasel does not let go. This is what a, a weasel is designed to do. It's how it survives. She tells a number of, of true stories about weasels that she's heard or read. And one of them goes back from a, a book she read that was, was quite old, back in the days when people still hunted eagles. And there's a story of a hunter shooting an eagle and upon going to examine the bird, she says, he found the dry skull of a weasel fixed by the jaws to the throat of that eagle. Right? And the supposition is that the eagle had pounced on the weasel. The weasel swiveled and bit at the neck of the eagle. Tooth to neck, as instinct taught him, and nearly won this battle. She says, I would have liked to have seen that eagle for the next few weeks or months before he was shot. Because the, the whole weasel would have still been attached, hanging to its feathered throat like a fur pendant. That's quite an intense picture of instinct, right? And Dillard concludes, she sort of draws from this, this experience, from these observations, that she herself would like to learn how to live like a weasel. Stalking, she says, only one thing in life, rather than many distractions. And she says, quote, living like a weasel would be yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of single necessity. I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one necessity and not let it go, to dangle from it limp wherever it takes you. Now you might say, how in the world does that connect to 
1 John, Dave. <laughs> well, in the, the passage we're, we're about to look at this morning, and actually throughout the, the writings of John, whether it's his gospel or these letters, there's, there's a particular word that John uses that I think comes particularly close to describing an instinct that characterize followers of Jesus, an instinct that we're meant to learn to live by. And it's, it's a simple Greek verb. It's the verb meno, which in our Bibles often gets translated as abide or remain or dwell. It literally means to, to stay in one place, to live in one place, to, to, to make your home in one place. But it's a word that Jesus himself uses in John's gospel to talk about what disciples do. Disciples abide. John 15 is maybe the most uh, full-blown or, or poetic passage of those commands to abide, but it shows up, I think, I don't remember, 60, 80 times in John's writings. It's, it's everywhere. John 15, right, Jesus' words to us, abide in me as I also abide in you. You can bear no fruit unless you abide in me. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Now abide in my love. According to Jesus, abiding is that single choice, right? That instinct to stalk one thing above everything else. It's to be attached to Jesus and to hold on for dear life, wherever that attachment would take us. And so in the second half of John chapter 2, or 1 John chapter 2, we're actually going to see that verb come up again and again. To meno, to abide, to remain. And I think John is cultivating this abiding instinct in us as followers of Jesus. And he talks about three ways that we attach ourselves more fully in that instinct. The first is to abide in love. Abide in the, the love of the Father for us, but also our love for the Father. The second piece or part of abiding is to abide in the truth of Jesus Christ, the, the truth about who Jesus is. And the third thing John calls us to abide in is the anointing presence of God's Spirit. Abide in the love of the Father. Abide in the truth of Jesus Christ. Abide in the anointing of God's Spirit on us and in us. So let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll look at this passage together. Jesus, I'm grateful that the work of discipleship, the life of following you, comes down to this one thing. Comes down to making our dwelling in you holding on to you, to drawing life and love and light from our relationship with you, and trusting that that will lead us wherever you want us to go. I pray now that the words of my mouth as I preach through this passage, that the meditations of our hearts, the abiding desires of our hearts would be pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen. This is 1 John 2, starting in verse 15. We'll look at, at 15, 16, and 17 to start out. 
John writes, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives, or the word there is, is abide or remains forever. If there is an instinct about our discipleship, if we're going to cultivate that instinct somehow, I think it has to start at the level of our desires. It has to attend to what we love with our hearts first. And so John, who is fond of, of dichotomies in his writing, right? he talks a lot about light and darkness, about hate and love, truth and falsehood, tells us here that there are essentially and only really two kinds of love. Talks about a love that comes from the world or of the world and points for the world, and a love for the Father. And John says that these two loves are, in fact, mutually exclusive. He warns us not to love one and to devote ourselves to the other. Verse 15, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And so I think we're, we're meant to ask, well, how is loving the world incompatible with loving the Father, loving God? Well, I think it's important that we, we get a sense for what John means when he says the world, that we, we qualify what he's actually talking about here. And it turns out that John talks a lot about the world in his writings, both here in this letter, also in his gospel. Right? The, the world, cosmos in the Greek, literally refers to sort of the entirety of, of what is created. But more specifically, almost always when John brings up this idea, he's thinking about the world in a particular state. He's thinking about the world in its sin, in its separation, in its ignorance or isolation from who God is, what God is truly like, how God truly feels and, and desires for the world to be. So John 1 in his gospel, for example, it says that Jesus came, right, the light of God came into the world. And though the world was made through Jesus, made through the light of God, the world didn't recognize that light. It was blind to that light. So there's a, a blindness, John says, about the world. John 3 in his gospel goes on to talk about God's love for the world. Right? God so loved the world, same word, cosmos, that he gave his only son. He sent Jesus into the world to bring it life, to love it, to rescue it, to redeem it. But the, the remainder of that, that passage goes on to say, but the world continually chooses to remain in darkness rather than stepping into that light and love. There's this disconnection between the world and God's love for it so often in John's writing. And so 
It's, it's not as though John is saying the world has no worth or has nothing to be loved in it. In fact, the world has great worth and is to be greatly loved because God so greatly loved the world, John 3. But John's concern is that the world, as he describes it, has forgotten its source of love. That the world is at a fundamental place disconnected from the God who made it, from the love that sustains it, from the love that pursues it. And so he warns us here in these verses not to love in that lost and disoriented and disconnected sort of way. Not to love things apart from the source of those things, the lover of those things, the creator of those things. And that's where he goes into this list about loves that are are inferior to the love of the Father, the gratification of our flesh, the lust of our eyes, the making our, our own pride paramount above all things. And John is saying our ability to truly love and also to truly experience love diminishes as we give ourselves to these kinds of loves. And so he says... Followers of Jesus need to cultivate an instinct by which we redirect, we reorient our love toward a different target. In his book, Desiring the Kingdom, theologian, philosopher Jamie Smith says that human beings at our core are creatures of desire. And he says, we are actually led by what we love. Right? Our loves lead us. And so where we aim our loves really matters. Right? Because our, our lives will follow suit. So John says here, if we love the world, if that's our primary target, if we aim our hearts at the world and all of these, these desires that he describes here and hope that it will love us back, the problem, verse 17 says, is that the world and those desires will pass away. He's saying the target of worldly desire, worldly love, is elusive. It's ever-changing. It's, it's it has no, no sustenance, no permanence to it. Right? We might love one thing today. Our desire might be for a bigger home or to own our first home today. Tomorrow it might be for a, a promotion at work. Maybe the, the next week it's a, a romantic interest or, or a physical desire. Maybe the desire is for the approval of a friend after that. Right? The, these are our desires, and, and, and in God, they're meant to have a place in us and for us. But on their own, they're ever-changing. They're not sustainable, and they are passing away, verse 17. But verse 17 goes on to say that if we aim our hearts at love for the Father and the love of the Father for us, in John's words, if we do the will of God, if that is our aim and our desire, then he goes on to say, that we will abide into eternity. That's the sort of literal translation of the end of verse 17. When we set our hearts on God's love, we will remain, we will dwell, we will live into eternity through that love. There's permanence there. We will be loved deeply in return. 
so abiding love is the habit of taking those desires to God, who is the source of love. The God who has loved us first. And inviting those desires to be informed by his love. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said it this way. He said, aim at heaven. Aim your desires, aim your dreams, aim your longings at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. But if you aim at earth, you will get neither. Where are our desires? Where are our loves oriented? So something, if you have your, um, these cards that were by the door, you want to take one with you, there are three application questions you could work through this week. The first one of those comes to this instinct about, about pointing our loves toward God. And so let me ask you, it probably would take you a few minutes of quiet to think about this, but try to identify one or two significant desires that are present in your life right now. Things that your heart and your mind are attached to and keep returning to. And then as you can maybe name those things, think about where do those particular desires point your love? Where are they leading you? Are they the kind of desires that help you connect with the love God has for you, with the love of the Father, with the desire to do his will? Or are they desires more likely to lead you to things that are ever-changing and passing away? Think about where are your present loves leading you? And again, that's something I would encourage you to talk about someone you're close with. Talk about it in relationship. So John says the first part of our our instinct to abide has to begin with where we point our love, where we are looking for love, where we are practicing love. But he goes on to say that we're more likely to hit the center of that target if we are also practicing an abiding instinct in another dimension, and that's by abiding in what is true. Look at verses 18 to 25 goes on to say, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained or abided with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist. Denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains or abides in you. If it does, you also will remain or abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. 
Now, there's a lot in those verses. Are we into left-behind series kinds of stuff here? Right? What's John getting at here? Well, he says if, if we're going to attach ourselves, if we're going to abide in our love for God and God's love for us, then we need to also be clear about who God is, about the identity of, of God as Father, Son, and Spirit. And so as followers of Jesus who abide in God's love, we also have to abide or remain in the truth. But just like there are competing targets for our loves, there are also competing versions of the truth out there or or available for us to concentrate on. And in verses 18 and 19, John describes a group of people he calls antichrists. And that word is, is loaded with all kinds of meaning that we've infused it with different movies and books and theologies. But John doesn't say these people have the mark of the beast or that they're ushering in the tribulation in some way. He, he refers to these people as antichrist for simply one reason. There's one thing that he says designates this group of people. And he says these are the ones who have not remained. They have not abided in a simple and very basic truth. They have not abided in the truth that Jesus is the Christ. So therefore they are against his Christness. They have departed from the message that he proclaimed from the beginning. That God the Father sent Jesus full of heaven's glory but also in a a fully embodied and human form. And God anointed this particular one to save us, to rescue us, to draw us into relationship with him. Verse 19 says that there's a group of people, there are some that were once in fellowship with John, those who he knew, probably those who were even part of his church, who he says refused to remain, refused to abide with them because they rejected this central message, that Jesus was the Christ. Now, there are all kinds of of secondary theological differences in our churches, right? As we, we try to read scripture and comprehend what it's communicating about what God has revealed. We, we develop different views on baptism. We, we develop different views on spiritual gifts. We develop different views on the end times. All sorts of things, right? And I believe there's, there's charity and, and space within the, the church to hold these differences. But John is clear that the identity of who Jesus is is not one of these secondary matters. For John, the truth about who Jesus is is primary. It's essential. It's non-negotiable. Verse 24, he says, this truth is from the beginning. In Arche, which he's he's used that, that phrase a number of times already. It precedes the creation of the world, who Jesus is. And he says we have to be clear on that, not just so that we have the right ideas, but so that 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 truth would abide in us, verse 24. That Jesus' full humanity, his full identification with our 
condition, but also his fully divine power to save us and, and, and to grow in us the ability to live as he lived, which is what John has just commanded us earlier in this chapter. He said we, we need that whole vision and understanding and belief and truth in order to follow Jesus the way we're meant to. He says these are things we're meant to attach ourselves to. Verse 24 goes on to say that as this truth abides in us, that it also causes us to abide in the Son and in the Father. Notice that for John, truth is always about relationships. It's never about information by itself, right? We need to know this truth. This truth needs to be in us so that we can be in the Son and therefore be in the Father. We could be in fellowship. We could be in relationship with who God truly is. Truth exists to draw us into relationship with the triune God. Like J.I. Packer said a few weeks ago, right? we're after knowledge of God, not knowledge about God. Truth is meant to draw us into knowledge, firsthand knowledge, following knowledge, traveler kinds of knowledge of Jesus. So how, how do you know the truth of Jesus, the anointed one, the truth of Jesus the Christ appointed and sent to you personally? How do you know the truth of a Jesus who walks daily with you? who guides you daily, who draws you into the presence of God the Father daily. Right? Where does your life on a, on a day-by-day level get attached to that truth? Not just up here, but in practice. How is it being renewed and deepened? As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, and if it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. So John says that we are meant to cultivate an abiding instinct by pointing our love toward the Father. We're meant to cultivate this abiding instinct by pointing our minds toward the truth of who Jesus is and what the gospel proclaims about him. I want to finish today by looking at verses 26 and 27. And they they point out a third and final dimension of of how we abide in these first two things. And and a a help that's been given to us to continue that work of abiding. Verse 26 and verse 27 talk about abiding in the Spirit's anointing. John says, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you stray. But as for you, the anointing you received from him remains. It abides in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you. But as as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, so remain or abide in him. The last thing John mentions here about abiding is this thing he calls our anointing. The anointing you received from Jesus abides in you. 
My guess is, as New England Congregationalist, we don't like the word anointing, right? Go down the, the road to the Pentecostal church, they'll talk about anointing all day long, and you'll get a little uncomfortable, and you will say, let's go back to the Congregational church. They don't talk about that stuff up there. But John says, I'm writing to you so that you can resist being led astray, led into the darkness, led into foolishness, led into destruction. I'm writing to you so that you'll stay on the true path of following who Jesus really is. And as you do that, let me remind you, remain in your anointing. What's he talking about? Well, it's probably helpful to know that the noun for anointing in Greek is charisma. It's derived from the same word as the title Christos, right, which is applied to Jesus. Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? It's a title we've given him. He is Jesus the Christ, Jesus the anointed one. Jesus, we proclaim, is the one that God has anointed and poured out his spirit in in the fullest possible way to save us, to be our Messiah, to be our Redeemer. And this is Right? This is exactly the message the Antichrist rejected. They were ones who were against Jesus' anointedness. John says, you are not among those. You are those who believe in the anointing of Jesus, and therefore, you also have that anointing. Probably the clearest picture we get of what this anointing looks like is in the gospel accounts of Jesus' baptism. Jesus goes under the water. Jesus comes out of the water. The Father parts the heavens and he says, this is my son. This is the one I've chosen. I delight in this one. And after and as the Father proclaims this truth about Jesus, what happens? But the Holy Spirit descends. It pours out upon Jesus. It comes down upon him. And what does John tell us at that moment? But that the Spirit meno abides on Jesus, and Jesus abides in him. Jesus is the one God has anointed and chosen to pour out his spirit fully upon, to live through that spirit, to rescue us through the power of that spirit. And so if Jesus is the Christ, if Jesus is the one God's spirit has filled with his charisma, his anointing, verse 27 says, You also now have that anointing in you. It abides in you. It lives in you. And so you have that anointing to serve as your teacher, John says. It serves as your advocate. In John 14, he calls the spirit the parakaletos, right? The the advocate, just like he calls Jesus the advocate here in 1 John 2. The anointing is our teacher. It is our advocate. It's our truth guide. The Spirit's anointing is there to lead us into light, to remind us of what's true, to convict us of our sin when we go astray, and to keep us attached to God's love. If you want a job description of the the anointing, the Spirit he's talking about, go back and read John 14, John 15, John 16. Language of, of the Spirit is everywhere in that upper room passage. And so John's saying, you're going to follow Jesus. Don't neglect. Don't forget about this gift. The Holy Spirit isn't just an imaginary thing that we we like to sing about sometimes. It's not a daydream. John says, this is one of the most real things about who you are. 
Spirit of God has anointed you. That anointing lives in you. It abides with you always. And so you have this invitation to listen to and to follow that anointing, that spirit that's present in you, wherever it would lead you. To speak the truth about Jesus to you. So a third question I'd invite you to to reflect on is, how do you experience the anointing of Jesus in your life? How do you personally listen to and interact with? How are you led by the Holy Spirit? How does that Spirit help you follow Jesus? And again, I think that's a great question to unpack with another brother or sister. So let me just leave you with this this reminder that as followers of Jesus, we are called to attach ourselves, to grow in this abiding instinct, to hold on to these three things, wherever they would take us. We're to abide in the Father's love and our love for the Father. We're to abide in the truth of who Jesus is, and we're to abide in the Spirit's anointing that lives in us and guides us. You pray with me. Lord Jesus, would you take all these thoughts, the the power of your word spoken and, and, and worked through and considered, and would you move them into our bones, into our relationships, into our words, into our actions, so that they would, they would grow new kinds of fruit in us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.